We're going to continue in the book of Luke. We are going to pick up in chapter 15. Uh, here in chapter 15, there is a major question that goes on in the ministry of Jesus. This is the continual discussion that is occurring. As you read the Gospels, as you read the New Testament itself, there is a question. And here is the question. It's a question that is relevant to today. It's a question that our society, our world needs to answer. And, and the question is this. Is Jesus' view of God right or not? Is the message that Jesus brings to us, is this the true message of God or isn't it? Because if it is, we'd better listen to what Jesus has to say. And if it isn't, well, I don't know, find some other book besides the Bible, right? Jesus is having this exact same discussion with the people to whom he is speaking. In Luke chapter 15, this, this is a, the group of people that he's talking to is the nation of Israel made up of two major groups. And he's talking to both of them. We have the people, the crowds, the hoi polloi, the, the, the people who are just kind of always there when Jesus speaks. He does miracles and so they gather. But there's also a group of people who are the scribes and the Pharisees, the educated people, the religious leaders, they are there as well. And Jesus speaks to both groups. And as he speaks, he's trying to portray to them the truth about who God is. The problem, of course, with the religious leaders is when Jesus and John the Baptist both preached the same message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The scribes and Pharisees both decided that that didn't apply to them and they don't actually have to repent. They don't need repentance. They see themselves as already righteous. Surely if the Messiah is going to show up and he's going to introduce the kingdom of God, well, the first thing he's going to do is welcome them into the kingdom, give them places to rule and to reign because they are worthy. Well, are they? Are they worthy? Do they, in fact, properly and correctly represent who God is? They would say they do. If you ask them, do you know the true teaching of God? They would immediately say, well, of course we do. And just come to us. We will inform you and enlighten you. And we'll tell you exactly who God is and exactly how it is you go about being godly. Well, Jesus does talk to them. And what he says to them continuously is that you guys actually don't have a right view on who God is. Now, I don't know about you. If I were Jesus... By this point in his ministry, and, and there are three major segments of the ministry of Jesus that we see presented to us here in Luke. Chapter 1 through chapter 9, verse 50, we basically see the, the introduction. We see the birth, and, and we see Jesus introduced, and the, and the baptism, and the temptation of the wilderness, and then his Galilee ministry occurs. We know how that ends. It ends with, woe unto you, Chorazin, woe unto you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works that have been done in you have been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. So he leaves that ministry and he moves on into the Judean ministry. And this is the segment that we're in. And this goes from chapter 9, verse 51 on through chapter 19, verse 27, at which point he will then move into his final chapter in which he actually goes to Jerusalem. 
So this segment is kind of in the middle. He's already left the Galilean segment. He has moved on to the Judean. And although it will take a while, he's going to wander around Judea. He might even end up temporarily back into the Galilean region because his disciples live there. And there's reasons to go there. But his actual ministry to that group of people is done. He's now down here in the south trying to talk to them. And this middle section is where we're at, and we're in the middle of the middle section in chapter 15. So what Jesus is doing is he's giving them parables. There are many parables in this section, many parables in the gospel. In Luke, there's about 20 parables. Jesus likes to tell stories. You know, there's a variety of ways that truth can be uh, given to us. Uh, If you go to Bible school, Chances are pretty good if you go to Bible school, and particularly if you go to get like a Bible degree, you're going to take a variety of classes, and you're going to learn about God in a variety of ways. You're probably going to be handed a book on who knows what, you know, eschatology, ecclesiology, uh, pneumatology, uh, Christology, maybe just theology proper, which, by the way, is the theology of who God is. And you're going to get these, and I've got a pile of them in my office there, you know, the nice big thick books. And some of them are reasonably interesting. Some of them are a pretty tough go, depending on who writes them. And they tell you about, you know, the church and about the Holy Spirit and about future events and all of these kinds of things. Well, that's one way to learn. And it's important. They're systematic. They go from Genesis to Revelation and they pull out all the verses that have to do with the Holy Spirit. It's good. It's... I would suggest you, if you can, you know, work on reading some of those. They're okay. They're good. It's it's a way to learn. There are other ways to learn. One of the things that Jesus uses most, and by the way, the scripture itself, when it comes time for God to convey to us who he is and to understand his relationship to us, what does God do? Well, we've got this book in front of us and much, if most, of this book is a story. It's a story. God tells us a story. God says, in the beginning, he made the heavens and the earth, and he takes a chapter or so to kind of lay out how that all went. But even at the end of chapter one, you know, God makes male and female. God makes Adam and Eve. In chapter two, he goes into a little more detail about that and gives us a little more, a little more information. But by chapter three, we've got all of the major players, Chapter 3, we've got God, we've got Adam and Eve, and we've got Satan. And as things go, that pretty much sums up the rest of the book. It's a a conflict between God and Satan played out in the lives of the descendants of Adam and Eve. And it's a story. Genesis itself is a story. Chapter 4, you know, is Cain and Abel. Chapter 5 is records that records everyone dies. Satan said, you won't die. Chapter 5 says, you will die. And it shows everybody, and even though they live a long time, they die. Chapter 6 through 9 is Noah. Chapter 10 is the Table of Nations. Chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. And by chapter 12, we've got on to Abraham. And from Abraham, pretty much the rest of the book is all a story about the Jews and Judaism and how that all goes. Even when we get into the New Testament... It shifts over into the church and Gentiles, but still the gospel is about Jesus who is Jewish. The whole thing is this story. What is the power of story? Why does Jesus use stories? Well, 
When you hear a story, or you read a story, or you go to the movie theater and you watch a story, or you turn on the TV, or go on your computer, a story allows you to enter into the event. You read it, or you watch it, and you become a character within the story. Good stories lead you to good truth. Bad stories, by the way, which the devil is all too happy to tell, lead you into error. So you read the Bible, and you read about David and Goliath, and why, for a minute anyway, you're David. You know, you're out there with your sling and your stone, and you're going after Goliath. You know, you're, you're Noah, and you're building the boat while everyone's laughing at you. Or you're Daniel in the lion's den, or you're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego about to get cast into the fiery furnace. Maybe you're Peter just about to step out of the boat and to walk on water. And for that moment, you are part of the story. By the way, be aware the power of stories. You know, it used to be, not that long ago, by the way, pretty much when TVs were black and white, uh, if you watch a Western, you could always tell who the good guys were, right? Why? They all wore white hats, right? I mean, we all know that. The good guys all wear white hats. Well, if you haven't noticed, then you're, I don't know, in a coma or something. We have now come to the place where the stories that are continuously told to us and told to our society, they portray anything but that. It was deliberate. Uh, there were many, but one that was rather pivotal was an extremely popular movie in the 60s, when else, of course, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. As things go, a great movie. There's just one problem with it. As you're watching Robert Redford and Paul Newman do their deal, if you're not paying attention, you suddenly realize you are cheering on bank robbers, or train robbers, as the case may be, who are stealing people's money. And yet you're over there rooting for them. Okay, that was not, that, that was deliberate. There was a deliberate attempt to get audiences to cheer the bad guy. Can we do this? Can we get people to be happy about the bad guy? And, well, yeah, come to find out we can. In fact, it's pretty tough these days to turn on anything made in the last decade that doesn't have immoral, ungodly people with all kinds of perversions all being portrayed as the heroes. And we're supposed to cheer that on. We're supposed to be happy about that. And oh, by the way, if there is a religious person any kind of preacher or minister, they are the biggest two-faced, lying, deceitful hypocrites that you can find. That's deliberate too. Because the devil knows the power of story. We need to learn the power of story too. Jesus certainly understood the power of story. God understands the power of story. The entire Bible. Sure, there are some places you can turn to. Go ahead, turn to Numbers, go down to the list. You're like, wow, that's okay. That's just a very small segment of the Bible, and it's essential to the people to whom that applied. If you're divvying up land based on who your ancestors are, you're going to find the book of Numbers to be a pretty important book because it's going to determine exactly which plot of land is yours. So even that fits into, although it may be a little dry for us, it's an essential reading for those to whom it is directed towards. So this book, this gospel, this place that we're in, we're listening to the teaching of Jesus. And Jesus is continuously conveying to us truth through stories. The last chapter that we just went through, Jesus, you will recall, 
Just some review here from three weeks ago. It's been a while since I've stood up here. Remember the last time we looked at Luke, Jesus had gathered together a huge crowd. Finally, big crowds down there in Judea. And instead of catering to them or appealing to their felt needs, Jesus gets up and basically says to them, unless you hate your mother, father, sister, or brother, unless you count me more important than your own family, you're not going to be able to be my disciple. You need to love God more than you love anything. You're going to have to love God more than you love your own family. In fact, you better be ready to take up your cross and follow him. And you only, of course, took up a cross when you're under a death sentence. Those are both stories, by the way. And then he talks about how, well, the guy wants to build a tower and he couldn't do it because he didn't plan ahead. Okay, there's a story. And you don't want to be that guy. So if you're going to come to Jesus, make sure you're prepared. There's a guy who's got the 20,000 coming at him and he's only got 10,000 to defend with. Here's a story. You're that person. God is coming. The judgment is coming. Can you withstand that? You better think carefully before God arrives or it's not going to go well for you. So take up your cross. Be prepared. Make sure that you're ready. And by the way, don't be deluded salt. Again, another illustration. Jesus loves to tell this kind of stuff. And then he ends it all with, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he goes on and he says this. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Well, who has ears to hear? All the tax collectors and the sinners. I mean, that's exactly what Jesus says. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then Luke says, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming and listening. Why? Because they have ears to hear. He goes on to say, however, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, guess what? They don't have ears to hear. Which is what Jesus is saying to them, and Luke is making it as plain as it could be made. There are those who have ears to hear and those who don't. And in case you hadn't noticed, if you've actually got your Bible open, you might notice that we went from chapter 14 to chapter 15 right there. And that chapter break, be careful, they weren't in the original text, okay? They're, they're okay, it's good if you need to look up verses to have chapter breaks, but don't somehow in your mind create some huge barrier between chapter 14 and chapter 15. There's not. Chapter 14 flows right into chapter 15. If you have ears to hear, listen, and the sinners are listening, the self-righteous are not. So when they make this observation, and by the way, Jesus, I could spend the rest of the morning talking about how Jesus hangs around with sinners. He just hangs around with sinners all the time. I mean, every time you turn around, Jesus is with the sinners, his disciples, I mean, he picked a tax collector for, for one of his disciples. I mean, it's a scandal. We're under occupation by Rome, don't you understand? We hate the Romans. And, and the worst people in our society are those traitors who are actually collecting taxes for the Romans, and you made one of them your disciple? It's scandalous. And it was scandalous. But Matthew repented and, of course, writes the Gospel of Matthew. So, you know, Jesus loves sinners. Jesus is constantly hanging around with sinners. Why are the scribes and Pharisees grumbling? Well, they're grumbling because they think the way to have righteousness before God is self-righteousness. They thought the thing we're going to do by, by any means necessary is certainly stay away from sinners. 
We are not getting near those folks. They will make us unclean. We're not touching them. We're not going to associate with them. In fact, we will, we will, on the Sabbath, as long as they stay in the back, by the way, we'll get up on the Sabbath and talk about how to be righteous with God. But don't expect us to actually intermingle with these folks. We don't eat with them. We stay as far away from them as we, we don't want to touch them. They might make us unclean. This is who the Pharisees were. So when Jesus and John the Baptist get up and say, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they're like, well, they're obviously not talking to us. We are not going to go down there and get baptized by John, which would indicate repentance. Not us. We don't need to repent. We're righteous enough all on our own. Of course, it's just tragic, right? This is just tragic. What they're, they are falling into a completely fatal error. They are proud. They should be humble. They're confident. They should be concerned. They are just brazenly out there with what they believe. They be ashamed of what they believe. They sit in judgment on all others. So what is Jesus going to do with these folks? How is... Okay, let me just tell you right now, if I were Jesus by this point in time, I mean, if you, know, if you left it up to me, I'd be done with these guys. I would be so done that, okay, you guys, you know, go, just, I don't, you know, I'm done. But not Jesus. Jesus is not there this time to condemn people. Jesus is there to give them truth, hope, to give them an ability, and an opportunity to repent. What Jesus is going to give them, and we're going to see it in this passage, he's going to talk to them about how to be right with God, even them. He's going, to, he's going to reveal to them the heart of God because they think they have the heart of God. They think they represent the heart of God. They think they are the ones that are going to tell everyone else what God's heart is. They're not. They're wrong. They don't understand God at all. Jesus is going to point this out to them with a story. Three of them, in fact. We're only going to look at one this morning. This is a tough lesson for them. He's going to tell the story. They're going to become part of the story. And when he gets to the end of the story, it's going to be hard for them to hear the truth. So, okay. Let's look, and let me just read for you the story. Luke 15, verse 1. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he had a hundred sheep, and lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one who was lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus tells them this story and he says, well, all right, uh, which one of you, if you were a shepherd? All right, you have to understand 
we have this kind of romantic view of shepherds. We, we, you know, we kind of think about David, right? I mean, the, the sweet psalmist of Israel. I mean, he was a shepherd. I mean, he used his shepherding skills to go out and kill Goliath. You know, great guy. Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. There's, there's any number. Moses was a shepherd. There's, there's all kinds of shepherds in the Old Testament, and they all, you know, seem to be doing quite well. Uh, yeah, sort of. I mean, they are. But you have to understand, by the time the New Testament rolls around, this is a more urban environment. This is a group of people, particularly the scribes and Pharisees. They, they're a little better than everybody else. I mean, don't you understand that? I mean, they're a little more educated. They're, they're just uh, cut above everyone else. That's general, genuinely what they think. Let me tell you what they wouldn't be on their lives. They certainly wouldn't be a shepherd. Shepherds were... Not looked upon as all that well. Shepherds were uneducated. Shepherds, you know, they hang around with sheep, just in case you hadn't noticed. Uh, And if you're a good shepherd at all, you love your sheep, which, by the way, you better. But, you know, if you hang around with sheep, next thing you know, you're picking them up, petting them, you're carrying them around. You know, you smell like sheep. Yeah, uh, you probably are wearing wool that smells a lot like the sheep. Uh, you don't really need, do you know how dumb sheep are? I mean, sheep are often described as an animal looking for a place to die. That's, that's kind of an apt description of sheep. They are pretty brainless. So in order to take care of sheep, I mean, in general, you don't really necessarily yourself have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer. Uh, And that's exactly how they were viewed. Kind of looked down upon as, well, if you can't do anything else, at least you can be a shepherd. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, uh, that's not a biblical view. Are you sure? Uh, This view has been around for quite a while. Remember David? We'll get back to David here, since we all kind of like David the shepherd. Okay, we like David the shepherd, but have you actually read the account? Because the account is that Saul is rejected as king by God. God tells Samuel, I want you to go to Jesse, and I want you to look at all his sons, and I want you to pick one of them, because I got one of them picked out for king. Okay, so Samuel shows up and informs Jesse what he's doing, and Jesse brings in his firstborn son. Tall, strong, strapping, just like Saul. Maybe not quite as tall as Saul, but a, a really good-looking, good-looking kid. And Samuel says, surely this is God's anointing. And God's like, uh, look, you look on the outward appearance. I'm looking on the heart. That is not the guy. So he prays all seven of his sons. God says, nope, 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 nope. All seven times. Samuel's kind of like, uh, well, I, wait a minute. You know, you told me one of his sons. I mean, we've got all seven. You got any other kids? Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, you know, we got the little redhead kid. He's, he's out watching the sheep. Okay, that's what they think of shepherds. He is the youngest. He, okay, you are going to come in here and you're going to pick one of my sons to be king? Well, let me tell you, the last guy, where I'm not even bringing him in here. The shepherd? Kidding me? That guy, he's no, he's just out watching the sheep. He's not good for anything. Okay, that's your Old Testament. 
That is a common way to think about shepherds. We, like I said, we had this romantic notion of shepherds. They didn't have any such romantic notion. You will recall when the battle ensues and the brothers go off, the older brothers go off, and you remember that, that when dad sent David out there to bring his brother some supplies, and he gets out there, and remember Goliath comes out and makes his big statement, and David starts asking around, it's like, what in the world does this, this uncircumcised Philistine think he is to defy the Lord God of heaven? And what does his older brother say to him? Why have you come down and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. You just came down here to see the battle. Just run home to you and your little sheep. You're nothing. Okay, that's, that's what they think of shepherds. So when Jesus shows up here, and Jesus tells them this parable and says, what man among you if he has a hundred sheep? And then he starts talking about being a shepherd. Okay, the Pharisees are already having a problem with this. They can't avoid entering into the story, but you have to understand the very fact that Jesus would tell a story about a shepherd and make him look good has already got the Pharisees in a tough spot. They don't like shepherds. They don't get near shepherds. They don't hang around with sinners, remember? They don't like sinners. And shepherds would certainly be, you know, down among that group of people. They, they did not hang around with shepherds. That was just not the crew in which they ran with. So this guy has 100 sheep. Now, in the ancient world, in the first century, it would have been very unusual. In fact, virtually impossible for a single guy to keep an eye on 100 sheep. You can't, you can't do it. They're... They're way too prone to all kinds of disease and disaster and running off and everything else. So this is clearly a community effort. It's not just this guy. So if you're sitting around wondering, well, I mean, he leaves the 99 and goes, looks, and you know, the wolves can come eat the 99. There are other shepherds here. The average flock in the first century would have been from 10, maybe 15 sheep. That uh, 15 would have been big for a single shepherd to keep track of. 10 was a little more like it. So this is Clearly a community effort. A group of people have got together. They've gathered up all the sheep, and they're, they're on their way back. They're on their way back to the town. They haven't got there yet because he's going to have to go find the lost sheep before he actually makes his way back to town. So they've got their sheep, and they know, probably because everybody's got 10, give or take, and we've all counted our sheep, and you know we've only got 99. We've got a problem here. Now, sheep are... Certainly, for a shepherd, this is going to be an expensive animal. You can't afford to just lose a sheep. Well, well, you know, hope he makes it till morning. No, he's not going to make it till morning. You need to go find the sheep. Now, the Pharisees would have understood that. They would have, you know, they, they'd have got into the story. They're listening to Jesus. They, yep, okay, we got a guy. He's part of this community. They got a bunch of sheep. They got a hundred of them. They got one missing. And he's going to go out and he's going to look until he finds whatever happened to that sheep. Now, he may only end up bringing an ear. He may end up bringing a hoof. I mean, if some predators got this thing, then. But you have to be able to bring back to, because it may not be his sheep. It may be one of the other shepherd's sheep. You need to, you need to make sure and come back with some kind of evidence that, 
Well, here you go. This is, this is what happened to my sheep. You hope not, of course. You want to go out and you want to, and you want to go find it. So you leave the 99. You leave it in the good care of the other shepherds, but you leave them. Like, I'm gonna, I, I got to go get my sheep. I got to go find it. And so you go out and you're looking and, you know, it's nighttime. That's why you brought them, the other ones in. And so you're out there. Maybe it's just dusk. It's, and sheep, who knows where it's gone? I mean, it's, it's wandered off. It's, it's, who knows where it is. And so you go and you try to find it. You do whatever it takes to hunt down the sheep. Go back to where you did the pasture. Follow the track. Maybe you'll hear it. You know, maybe it's out there bleeding. You know, it's crying out there, hopefully, to let you know. Well, sure enough, he finds the sheep. And he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. You know how much sheep weigh? The average sheep can weigh as much as 150 pounds. And rams, full-grown rams, can weigh 300 pounds. Doesn't say which sheep this was. Doesn't say exactly where it fell into that range. But this is, we're not huffing up here, you know, a 40-pound little lamb here. This is a lot of sheep. This is a full-grown sheep that has wandered off. And he picks it up and he puts it on his shoulders. Why? Well, I'm not letting this thing go. Clearly, this sheep is prone to wander, and I'm not going to let it wander. I am going to grab this thing, put it on my shoulders. I'm going to bear it. I'm going to bear the full burden, the full weight of this sheep. And I am going to make sure that this sheep gets from where we are back to safety. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to carry the load. This is the story. This is what's happening. He picks up the sheep, and even though it's heavy, and even though it's, it's a burden to bear, he does it rejoicing. I found my sheep. I, I found the sheep. It's still alive. No predator has gotten it. I got to it before the predators got to it. It was lost. Now it's found. This is a time of rejoicing. In fact, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors. All right? So they were, they were in the pasture on their way back. But now he's gone back into town and he's like, hey, I found my sheep. This is time to have a party. Everybody rejoiced with me. I, this would have been a pretty significant financial blow. I mean, if your average flock is only 10 sheep, this is a tenth of your wealth. It's going to be tough to lose. So he's happy. He's rejoicing that he's found it. Now, the story is, up to this point, quite straightforward. I mean, everyone who hears this story, particularly them, they... You can find sheep, by the way. There, we have people here that you can go out to Kathy's ranch. She's got some sheep out there. Uh, if you want to see sheep, right? if you want to get a little more cultural insight into this account, it's possible to do it. We live in sheep country. Uh, they would understand this very well as well. They saw sheep all the time. It was a daily occurrence for them. So up to this point, this is all straightforward. I think the Pharisees would have, you know, uh, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. They know he's talking to them. And they're kind of following the story. And you can see them, okay, yeah, the guy's got the sheep. And he's left them all to go find one. And he finds it. And he's happy about that. And yeah, and, and. You know, you, you can imagine them just kind of wondering exactly what's what here. And then Jesus says, I tell you in the same way, let me bring home the point of this story. 
There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who think they need no repentance. Remember the context. Remember what's being discussed here. Those who have ears to hear are listening. And who are those? The tax collectors and the sinners. And who isn't listening? Well, both the scribes and the Pharisees are grumbling and saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And that just doesn't make sense. That can't possibly be how God is. God doesn't hang around with sinners. God is holy and righteous. God doesn't have anything to do with sinners, don't you know? Really? Let me tell you this story. There was this guy who had 100 sheep, and he lost one of them. He went out and got it, and when he got it, he was really happy about it. And you know what? That lost sheep, that lost sheep was like the sinner who has wandered off. This is the heart of God. The heart of God is to rejoice when sinners come back. In fact, God picks up the sinner, puts him on his shoulders, and carries him to salvation. This is the parable. This is, this is the story. God is the one who is so, and by the way, heaven rejoices at the repentance of any sinner. Not Pharisees. And that's their problem. Jesus is, is looking at them like, he's not trying to condemn them. He's, he's not there to sit in judgment on them and to you know, cast them into outer darkness. Not yet. He will when the great white throne judgment comes. He's the one sitting on the throne. But for this moment and for this time, even now, we need to approach the lost with the heart of God. And the heart of God is God loves sinners, real sinners. They're just kind of half sinners, kind of sinners. Actually, they're pretty nice people. They've got a few, pro oh no, sinners, real sinners, wicked people, evil people. God loves them. And if you're surprised by that, you just haven't looked in the mirror long enough to figure out that you are a wicked, evil person right to the core of your being until God comes and helps you transform that. That's who we are. And God loves us and them. And the greatest thing that we should do is give the lost the gospel. And don't hesitate. Don't look at someone and go, man, I don't know if they're ever going to believe the gospel. Don't think that you've got to find some fairly nice person who seems to have a good life and, and, and has a happy marriage. And boy, if only they'd get saved. They're such a nice person. Okay, watch out for that. Find somebody who's got tattoos all over them and has just got a mean... Rotten look on their face. Give them the gospel. See how that goes. Come to find out, those are the very people God loves. He loves the other people too. God loves all sinners. God loves sinners. He delights in going out and finding them. The lost ones. So should we. So should we. We should love sinners. All of them. Love the lost. Share with them the love of Christ. Jesus will pick them up and carry them on his shoulders and take them back. And there will be rejoicing. There will be more joy in heaven over a sinner who figures out he's a sinner and repents than over a bunch of self-righteous people who don't think they need any repentance at all because 
Well, there's actually not going to be joy in heaven over those folks. Those folks will be cast headlong into hell. And Jesus is trying to help these guys figure out. There's two more stories to go. He's, he's looking at these people who are so, so lost that they think they're found. They're so blind, they think they can see, but they can't. And so we need to love the lost and give the gospel to them. Share the gospel with people. Let them know that God loves them. And when they repent, and God is not just us searching for them, God is searching for them. And when you find someone that God is looking for, they'll repent and you'll get to be in on that. And it is the greatest thing ever to give the gospel to people and watch them believe it. And they'll become part of the family, part of the body. They'll enter into the midst here and God will give them gifts. And it was just tremendous, tremendous. Pray that God use our lives to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for the lost. We thank you that you care about those whom we might reject, whom we might look at as Sinners so extraordinaire that it just seems hard to believe you'd be looking to forgive those folks. But in fact, Lord, if we just think about it carefully enough, that's us. And you forgave us. So may we give the message of forgiveness to any and all, to every person on earth. Give us eyes to see the lost like you do. May it grieve us to think that any, would perish. Give us hearts that give the lost the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.